You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. All right. Well, hey, next week is our anniversary service celebrating five years of God's faithfulness. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome time. Free food, free fun. Make sure you are here. We'll celebrate in between both services, so it doesn't matter when you come, but just make sure you're here. It's going to be an amazing, an amazing, amazing time. And today, you guys, we are in a message series entitled Seven, A Letter to the Seven Churches. And this is part number six already. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this series. We're going to finish it all up, and that will conclude our series. But this week is part number six. And this series is all about uh, these seven letters that Jesus dictates to the Apostle John, seven letters to seven different churches spread across Asia Minor, which is, we may not be familiar with Asia Minor, that minor, that is simply modern day Turkey. And the Apostle John is the one who writes these letters, obviously. He's the writer here. And he's actually on the island of Patmos, which is this tiny little island um, just off the west coast of Turkey. And the reason why John writes from there is because he's been exiled there by the Roman emperor Domitian. So John was preaching the gospel. And of course, in that time, the Roman Empire uh, was sort of over the entire region there, Mediterranean, and the Roman Empire, Empire persecuted Christians. And of course, John, being a preacher of the gospel, was exiled to this tiny little island where he writes these uh, different letters. Now, this happens in um, chapters 2 and 3 of the last book of the Bible, which is, of course, Revelation, Revelation. Now, today we're looking at the uh, sixth church, which is the church in Philadelphia. And I want to remind you that two of the churches of the seven, two of the churches do not receive condemnations, okay? They don't receive critiques. Now, those two churches are Smyrna, that was week number two, and, uh, and then it'll be today, the church in Philadelphia. I also want to remind you that when we look at these churches, this is not just a good history lesson, Right? So we're not just studying seven random churches uh, during the first century. This is actually, uh, these letters are relevant for us today. I want to show you what one Bible commentator has said about these letters. He says this, we must not look on these letters as ancient relics. On the contrary, they are mirrors in which we see ourselves. Mirrors in which we see ourselves. Church, let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you have ever woken up, you went to the bathroom, looked in the mirror, be honest, and you did not like what you saw? Anybody? Just a few of you. The rest of you are probably lying, right? So, right? You woke up in the morning and you looked in the mirror and you're like, ooh, I didn't expect to see that, right? a little bit rough this morning. There's that zit on your nose, and you're like, oh my goodness, like, how am I going to cover that up? 
Maybe there's the bags under your eyes making it clear that you have not slept well, and everybody's going to know that when you walk into the office, right? It's the wrinkles that you're like, I didn't think they were there, but now I see them all of a sudden, right? The summer tan is wearing away. Oh, no, no, no. Back to my pale self, right? And so you look in the mirror, and you're like, oh, this is... ah." Okay, I got a lot to work with this morning. Lord, help me, right? You don't like what you see. And this is kind of the picture that we see with these seven letters, right? They're supposed to be mirrors. That when we read them, it's like, oh, man, we're, we're seeing ourselves. And sometimes it's not pretty, right? Sometimes it's just not pretty. And here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that Jesus, he knows the strengths and the weaknesses of every church. Because every church has, guess what? Strengths, weaknesses. No matter how much you love a church or you've come from this church, oh, I love that church, and they had this, and they did that, and over there, it was amazing, right? Now listen, every church has strengths and weaknesses. You just don't know those there enough to know their weaknesses, right? But every church is not perfect. And so these letters act as mirrors. And when we look at them, when we read them, Christ calls us to make corrections when and where it's necessary. And that's what we're doing over these past several weeks. And so we're going to just jump right in. I, wanna, I want you to join me uh, in Revelation chapter 3. It's the last book in your Bible We're going to pick it up in verse number 7. We're going to read all these verses, um, 7 through 13, and then we'll pray together, and then we're just going to dive in, okay? Amen? Sound good? Awesome. Okay, let's go. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, Jesus, okay, speaking here, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, he says. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth or those who dwell on the earth. A different translation says it that way. I am coming soon, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Pay attention to this church, which is what? Coming down out of heaven, right? Heaven literally colliding with the earth. That's what, that's what God's intent was in the first place. Coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, right? Not just physical ears, though, church. Listen, spiritual ears, okay? 
Whoever has ears, listen with your heart. Let them hear what the Spirit says to Radiant Church, to the churches. So you have, if you have an ear to hear, I want you to lean in. I want you to hear with your heart. I don't want this to go in one ear and then out the other, because, I mean, many people have done that before. But listen, I want you to listen with your heart. Listen with your heart. I want you to ask the Lord right now, God, if you're real, speak to me. Some of you, this is not relevant, but for some of you, that is a relevant prayer. God, if you really love me, I need you to say something to me personally. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we honor your word, God. Your word is alive. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. God, heaven and earth will pass away, but you said that your word will not pass away. So, Father, we honor your word today, and we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God here on the earth, that the Spirit would open eyes that are blind, break open hearts that have been hardened because of life, unlock deaf ears to hear you, to know you, God. Would you have your way in our Midst. God, convict where conviction needs to come, Lord. Encourage those who are discouraged, Lord. And Father, lead those who don't know you to your son today, God. We are uh, not here to go through the motions. We're here to see you and know you, God. Have your way in our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Well, recently, um, and I say recently, I mean like this week. <laughs> recently, I began reading, for the first time, a Christian classic by the name of The Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read this book before? Raise your hand. Yeah, a decent number of you, right? I regret to say that I've never read this book. Um, it's been around for quite some time. And so the very first time I'm actually reading this, my wife and I are reading it together. Um, there's a picture of it right here, if you want to go ahead and put that up. The Pilgrim's Progress, it was written by the esteemed, celebrated English minister and pastor by the name of John Bunyan. And he wrote this in the year 1678. And so we're reading this book right now. Of course, we're reading a modern translation because the original one is quite difficult to understand from what I hear. Um, the one on the right is the one for kids. Parents, if you have little ones, um, you can read this to them. If they're old enough to read, they can read it. It's called The Little Pilgrim's Progress. But this is no joke. This is that, that book is over 300 pages long. My daughter, who's seven years old, she's already read through it the entire book. She's reading through it a second time because she eats books for breakfast, right? And so um, this book is pretty, and my kids are laughing right now because I'm using them as an example, and they will have to suffer for that for the rest of their lives. Okay. This, <laughs> this book, they're still laughing. This book is a Christian allegory, and what an allegory means is that it's symbolic of the Christian life, right? The journey that one makes and in this book, you follow a man named Christian. Uh, how fitting, right? From the very beginning of his belief to all the way until he reaches heaven. 
Now, check this out. The book has never been out of print, and it's still considered one of the most significant works of theological fiction in English literature. If you don't know about this book, you should like know about this book, right? I love the book because in the book, listen, you find yourself like inside the book. Like you're like, oh my gosh, this is my life. This is me. I've faced this before. And so you follow Christian, this man, and what he does is he sets out from the city of destruction, which represents a life of sin and death. And he makes his way on this journey to where? To the celestial city, which represents heaven. Now, along the way, along the journey, Christian meets all kinds of crazy people, wild people. He meets these guys like, his name is the evangelist. And the evangelist is very, very helpful. He offers him guidance. He encourages Christian. But along the way, Christian also meets these people who are not so helpful. In fact, their sole purpose is to deter Christian from staying on the path. And so he meets people like worldly wise man, which is, represents worldly wisdom, right? That we, we know better than God, right? It's this idea that we, we can do better than God's ways. And he begins to follow him for just a bit. Sometimes Christian uh, believes the voices of fears and doubts. And again, listen, there are times where he begins to veer off the path just a bit. But I love this because as soon as he realizes that he's veered off the path, what does Christian do? He repents. He's like, oh my gosh, I am, uh, how could I believe that? What was I doing? I didn't, I didn't, I thought, I, I thought I knew better, but I, I'm sorry, God. And he gets back on the path and he's determined to make his way. Now, Christian doesn't live a perfect life, nor do any of us, right? But his aim is to please the king. His aim is to please the king and follow the path. And one of the keys to his success is this. It's holding on to the words of the king, holding on to the words of those who are trying to encourage him, like the evangelist or like the interpreter who represents the Holy Spirit, right? It's a, it's a truly fascinating book because in the book, Christian experiences like highs, like the highest of highs, but also what the lowest of lows, right? But here's the, here's the, here's the amazing thing. In it all is the grace of God that meets Christian where he's at. It's the grace of God that lifts Christian back up, puts him back on the right path, and again, he begins to make his way towards the great celestial city. Nothing can stop him from this journey, although there are tribulations, there are trials, there are temptations, there are mistakes that he makes, Christian gets back on the path. Such an inspiring read. I think of Proverbs 24, 16. It says this, you know it. It says this, go ahead and put that on the screen. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Now, when you read the book of Proverbs, leave, leave that verse up. When you read the book of Proverbs, one of the things, one of the literary techniques that the writer uses to get his point across is comparison and contrast. Comparing and contrasting. 
So the writer often compares righteous people to wicked people. So notice what he does here. The righteous are going to get back up. But the wicked, it's a different story. They stumble when calamity strikes. They stumble when calamity strikes. The proverb speaks of this idea that the righteous are not promised an easy life, right? The righteous will experience trials, and they may even stumble at times. But though the, the grace of God that was won for them by the cross of Christ, through that, they get back up and they continue on the journey. It's a lot like the journey that Christian makes in the pilgrim's progress. They get back up. The righteous man, the righteous woman will get back up. And listen, I was thinking about this uh, story, and I was thinking about this attribute of God's people, and it's the attribute of resilience, resilience, right? Godly people have resilience. What is the definition of resilience? Did you know the definition of resilience is this? It's to spring back, to rebound. It's actually coming back, listen, church, to the original form or position after what? After being bent, compressed, or stretched. It's coming back to that original position or form. It's, it's springing back. It's rebounding back, right? After you've been stretched, you've been what? Pressed, which, by the way, the Apostle Paul uses that language. I'm pressed on all sides, he says. Stretched. Have you ever heard another believer use that word stretched? I have. How do we use it? We use it like this. Man, I just feel like I'm just being stretched lately. Don't you? Yeah. My faith is being stretched so much. What does that mean? That means that this person has the need to exhibit more faith, perhaps, than they ever have. So the idea is like your, your faith may be stretched. You may be pressed, like literally compressed like the Apostle Paul, okay? But resilience has you bounce back, spring back to the original position, right back where you started. Resilience, resiliency, it speaks to the ability to bounce back, to get back up after a trial, after a fall. So as I, as I was reading this passage in Revelation, I couldn't help but think of the Pilgrim's Progress. That's why I, I talk about it this morning. This lifelong journey what, of ups and downs, right? Of trials, temptations, and tri tribulations, of good days and terrible days, on days where you make good choices, on days where you don't make so great choices, you make unwise choices, right? This idea of God's grace that meets us, that strengthens us, his spirit that gives us power to walk on this journey that, that, that really just builds us up and causes us to walk forward no matter what happens, right? No matter what happens. And this is the message, actually, to the church in Philadelphia. And today, listen, the message is real simple. It's real simple. I think we could summarize it in three words, church. Three different words. Summarize the message today. Don't miss out on it. Because it's simple, doesn't mean that it's not profound, because I think it is profound. Here's the message Jesus has for all of you this morning. No matter what you've come in with, don't give up. Okay? Don't give up. 
I saw a tweet this week by a man named Mike Bickle. Some of you know who he is. Uh, I think most of you probably don't. He's the founder of IHOP KC, not to be confused with the International House of Pancakes, although I am a big fan of them as well. Um, Mike Bickle founded the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And he had this tweet this week that he shared. It was shared on Instagram by uh, some people that I follow. I thought it was a great uh, tweet. I was actually pretty encouraged by it. It says this, radical Christianity is not going on a mission trip or a big conference. Radical Christianity is staying steady for decades. Right? Mission trips are great, and I believe, with them. I believe in them. Don't get me wrong, right? Conferences are helpful. You can learn a lot at conferences. Those can be really good things. Those can, you know, people, people go to conferences to, to see their favorite Bible teacher or whoever it is, you know what I mean? They, they follow people around, and that can be nice, and that's nice and all. It's encouraging, right? But that's not Christianity. That's not, that's not radical faith. I want to add to this, actually. Radical Christianity is not um, attaining a platform or a position, just so you know. Radical Christianity is not trying to, to get on a church staff. Radical Christianity is not trying to seek a name for yourself. Radical Christianity is not about you being recognized, everybody recognizing who you are, everybody seeing your gifts, your talents. No. It's been so convoluted lately, I feel like, what radical faith is, right? Radical faith actually simply, listen, is this idea of following Jesus through the ups and downs, always striving to know him more and point others to him. Can I get one amen from you guys? Hello? Okay, a few of you, all right, cool. Man, come on, guys. I love you, but holy smokes, you're killing me here. Radical faith is simply not giving up Stay in the path even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. This is the message today. It's pretty simple, right? It's simple, yet it's profound. And I'm jumping all over the place. Just, just bear with me. Stay with me. These are all the things that the Lord just sort of dumped on me this week. Okay? Matthew chapter 24 is a, is, a, is a chapter that talks about the end of the, end of the age, like the end of the world. If you've never read Matthew 24, read it. It'll rock your world. Um, there's a lot that's difficult to understand. Even I don't understand a lot of it, and I've read through it uh, many, 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 many times, um, studied it. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about the signs of the end of the age, right? And those signs of the end times, listen, Although they're really important, I don't think they're the central message to Matthew 24. I think there's a greater message to Matthew 24. Repeatedly, Jesus tells the church, be on guard, watch out, stay awake. I think this is the greater message that Jesus has in Matthew 24. Jesus knew, listen, church, that the greatest enemy, the greatest threat to the church in the end times, listen, was spiritual lethargy. What does that mean? That means the sluggishness, you know, 
That means a laziness. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to go to church again. I don't want to, I don't want to do anything. I just want to give up. It's an unwillingness to sort of stay the path, right? Move forward. Jesus knew, listen, that this was the greatest threat to the church in the end of the age. And smack dab, right in the middle of Matthew 24, is verses 12 and 13. And notice what it says. You'll see where I'm going here. Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Do you not see that right now, right? But the one who, what does it say, church? Stands firm to win, to the end, right? I know some of you are just like, just get us to the next election year. God help us, right? I don't blame you. For, I'm there too, but okay. But, but, but listen, it's not just to the next election year. Jesus says, whoever stands firm to win, the very end. That's the one who will be saved. In fact, the ESV translates, translates that as the one who what? Endures. Endures. The one who endures to the very end will be saved. This is the message. Now, notice what Revelation 3, verse 8 says. We'll go back to Revelation. Jesus says, I know your deeds to Philadelphians. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Let me unpack this quickly for you. Jesus says, listen, I've set before you an open door. Now, here's the thing about that phrase, an open door. If you, okay, the first rule of hermeneutics, what does hermeneutics mean? Hermeneutics is the interpretation of Scripture. The first rule of hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So that phrase, the open door, if we want to understand what does that mean, we should look in Scripture first. Where does that show up? How is it used? Well, commentators talk about, of course, the most obvious way it's used is with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uses this phrase a couple times, at least two or three times, I think. And when he uses this word, the open door, right, what does he talk about? He's talking about a door of opportunity for effective ministry. Okay, so keep that in mind. When Paul uses it, that's what he means. An open door for effective ministry, a chance to spread the gospel, to serve people, to share Jesus. That's what Paul means. Now, it can mean the same thing here in Revelation. Jesus saying, I'm giving you, the church, an opportunity, an open door, a, 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 an opportunity to share the gospel, the, the good news. But... Some commentators say it doesn't mean that because if you go to Revelation 4, verse number 1, what does it say there? We're not going to look there, but here's what it says. John says, I see before me an open door in heaven. And so what commentators believe is that Jesus is actually talking about an open door access to heaven. In other words, he's saying to the church in Philadelphia, hey, the, the door to heaven is open to you. Don't give up. It's open. Look. Come to the celestial city. Make your way on the journey. I know it's hard. I know no one else around you is doing this, the, the, the same thing as you are. But come. The, the, the door is open to you, right? So Jesus says this. A door has been set before you. And this church was probably very small, so they felt insignificant, right? Um, they felt like they had little strength to oppose evil. 
But Jesus commends them and he says, listen, here's what you've done. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Those are two things that are really important, keeping God's word and then not denying Jesus' name because I'm sure we'll have that opportunity. Let's skip down to verse number 10. And Jesus writes, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that, you, so that no one will take your crown. Let's, let's pause there. I want to unpack this just a little bit. Okay, two phrases that I want to unpack. The first phrase that I want to unpack is that phrase, endure patiently. Jesus says, you've endured patiently. Patient endurance, okay? Jesus says, you're going to patiently endure, okay? And for this reason, Jesus says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, um, to keep you secure when the trial that comes on the whole world comes. I'm going to keep you safe in that, okay? Now, some, some commentators believe that this is regarding the great tribulation because he says the whole world, which we have not seen that yet, but the whole world, and if you think about uh, eschatology, um, seven years of tribulation, uh, many commentators, believers would say that the first three and a half years is known as the tribulation, but the second three and a half years is called the great tribulation, which is uh, such a calamity, such suffering like the world has never seen before. That is what's coming. Now, Jesus says to the believers there, he says this. He says, I'll keep you secure. Now, I don't think it means that he's, he's going to prevent us from suffering, okay? What I do believe is that it means that he will sustain us through it. He'll sustain us through it. Whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever, we're not going to talk about that today. I'm really not posh enough on my eschatology to even have a discussion really on that. I believe that whatever happens, we're going to go through some stuff. It's going to be real bad stuff, but he's going to sustain us. Okay? He's going to sustain us. It doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. I think we will suffer, but he'll sustain us through it. The second phrase I want to highlight to you is the phrase, hold on. Hold on. It's in verse number 11. Jesus says to hold on to what you have. So let's take that phrase and let's put it back inside the Bible because remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. How does that show up in the New Testament and how is it used? Let me show you three different ways. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. So prophecy is for the church today. There it is. Do not treat them with contempt, but test them all. And then what does he say? Hold on to what is good. There's that phrase. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Let's keep going. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Timothy, my son, Paul writing to his young protege, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may what? Fight the battle well. And then what does he say? Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck to regard, with regard to the faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, to be taught, 
not to blaspheme. In other words, there were some in the church that Paul had to say, I release you, I'm handing you over to Satan because you have not held on to the faith. You're doing something different. Paul says, I release you. Satan can have his way with you. Revelation 2, 24 and 25 Jesus, now I say, we, we, we've read this before, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to, what does Jesus say there? Hold on to what you have until I come. Very similar to Philadelphia, right? So how do we see that verse, how do we see that phrase used in the New Testament? Here's how we see it used. The scripture says, hold on to what is good. The scripture says, hold on to the faith. The scripture says, hold on to a good conscience. The scripture says, hold on to what you have. Right? Hold on. Some of you are like, that's, that's not very exciting. Well, let me show you something else. Alex Honnold, maybe there's a few of you who know the name. Alex Honnold is the most famous climber ever. Go ahead and show that picture. It's pretty wild, isn't it? Can you imagine if that was you? Anybody? Check this out. On June 3rd, 2017, Alex Honnold became the first person to free solo Yosemite's El Capitan. And by the way, to free solo means to climb a rock, a giant rock, without a rope, without a partner, without any protective gear. Alex Honnold climbed, free soloed Yosemite's El Capitan. I want you to just think about this for a moment. Think about the strength of Alex. Think about his endurance. Think about the courage he needed. Think about the will to succeed, right? Because when Alex Honnold climbs, right, he's holding on to the rock, isn't he, right? He's holding on to the rock, and if he lets go, he's literally falling to his death, right? And so he's holding on. Alex Honnold puts the phrase, hold on, into an entirely new light, right? Hold on. Alex Honnold never used ropes when he free soloed. And that means at any moment, right? If he let go, he'd fall to his death. That moment, Alex Honnold was what? Holding on to the rock. And we have something so much better than Alex Honnold. We have something so much better than a rope, harness, another person. We have to hold on to an anchor for our soul, right? A rock 
His name is Jesus Christ, right? A savior who shed his blood in our place. And so while Alex Honnold holds on to the rock, we hold on to the rock of our salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the faithful one. He's the one that will never let you down. He's gone before you. He's taken your shame and nailed it to the cross. He's forgiven every sin. And I think a more accurate picture that we have is that we're holding on to Jesus. But a better way to say it is that Jesus is holding on to us. Come on, clap your hands this morning, right? Clap your hands this morning. He's holding on to you. Because listen, listen, I'm going to tell you this morning, church, I don't know about you, but my grip gets a little bit weary sometimes. Come on, come on, someone. Come on, is anyone here this morning? Come on. Sometimes I'm discouraged. Sometimes, right? You're discouraged. Sometimes you fall. Sometimes you make a mistake, right? Sometimes people talk negatively about you. Sometimes, listen, everything seems to be at you. Sometimes the anxiety is, you, you don't know how you can get through another day with your anxiety, with your depression, with the way your insecurities, the weight of the world your addictions, right? And you go to that drink more than you would like to admit. You go to that relationship more than you want to. Listen, and your grip begins to slip. And just when one hand comes off the rock, Jesus says this, he grabs on your arm and he reminds you, I'm holding on to you, right? Come on, church. Does anybody need courage this morning? Anyone? Come on, here's what I want to say to you, church. We can hold on to Jesus because Jesus is holding on to us. It's not your strength. It's not how good you are. It's not how much faith you have, right? It's not enough. It's his faithfulness to you when you veer off the path, when you make the mistake, when you dive into sin, when you Make a choice that's not healthy. It's His faithfulness to you. And so we hold on to the rock because He's holding on to us. And, he, and guess what? His grip never grows weary. His grip never grows weary. Church, listen, here's the words for you. Three of them, don't give up. Don't give up. Pastor Marco, I've made may, way too many mistakes. Don't give up. Repent. Turn away from sin. Get back on the path. I feel like my circumstances are overwhelming right now. I feel like my enemies are surrounding me. Don't give up. Don't give up. I'm battling anxiety and depression. I take these pills for it every day, and I don't even know if they're helping. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm prone to take too many pills, and, and I don't give up. Don't give up, right? I'm, I'm trying not to, 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 I'm trying not to run towards Miller Light, Bud Light, Red Dog, whatever your thing is, I don't even know, right? 
but I keep running towards it. I don't want to, but I do. Don't give up. Surrender to Jesus, right? Surrender to Jesus. Listen, he's made a way for you, right? And if you veered off the path, if you're here this morning, listen, and you veered off the path, you started to believe lies, you started to believe your doubts, all your fears, all the mistakes that you've made in the past, and you look back on your past and you think, my life is a mess. Look forward. Repent of your sin. Lay it down. The truth is you could never earn heaven. You'll never be good enough. You'll never, I'll never be good enough to earn heaven. You can't. That's why we need a savior to step in your place, our place, who shed his blood for us, who went, who took punishment that we deserve. Jesus said, I'll take their place, right? And now he comes and he, when we're in our pit, Jesus reaches down and he pulls us up, right? And he puts our foot on a rock puts a new song in our heart, right? It's a hymn of praise is what David says in Psalm 40. Many will fear, right? Put their trust in the Lord. Jesus is holding on to us, church. Don't give up. Where are you today? Where are you this morning? Are you overwhelmed with consequences? Are you full of guilt because of life choices? You are probably. Some of you are. Con you're condemned. Lay it down or give it all to Jesus. Lay it at the foot of his cross. He wants to take all of it. Even my past, he wants your past too. What about my family? My family is completely dysfunctional. My dad's an addict. My mom doesn't even know her own name. He wants all of it. Give it to Jesus. You have no other choice. Or you can walk down the path of death, darkness, destruction is waiting for you on the other side. But Jesus is on the other side saying, no, 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 listen, listen. I paid for all of that on the cross. I gave my life so you could be forgiven. It isn't, it isn't your righteousness. It's my righteousness, Jesus says. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. And this morning, listen, church, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, don't give up. Why? There's a crown waiting for you and I. Crown. We don't deserve crowns. Crowns are for royalty. I don't feel like royalty some days, right? I mean, do you? I don't. I feel like a failure some days. Jesus says, I've got a crown waiting for you. Get up. Pursue me. Stop pursuing sex. Stop pursuing pleasure. Stop pursuing your own plans. Stop all of it. Pursue Jesus. But, 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 but what if, but what if? Pursue Jesus. No one else around me is doing it. Pursue Jesus. What if my parents? Pursue Jesus. What if my friends walk away? Pursue Jesus. What if she doesn't understand? Pursue Jesus. Don't give up. We want to pray for you this morning. We want to encourage your heart this morning. This is the message Jesus has for the church in Philadelphia. I see your deeds. Don't give up. There's a crown awaiting you. Hold on to what you have. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. and uh, We don't deserve the grace that you've shown us through Jesus, God. How is it, God, that you could love us 
How could you love a sinner like us, God? Sinners like us. How could you love us despite the mess that we've made in our lives, God? How could you still want us? How could you love us, Lord, when everyone else has rejected us? How is it, God, that you could love us that much? God, we don't understand that kind of love. We don't even, we can't even comprehend. And yet, Lord, what we do this morning is we just simply open our hearts to you. And we say, God, we want it. We, we, we receive the love of Jesus. We receive your love right now, God. God, make us whole, make us new, transform our hearts, God. God, forgive us of sin, Lord. And if we veered off the path, Lord, convict us, Lord. Let us repent of it and get back up and pursue you, Lord. God, thank you that you have not given up on us, even though we give up on ourselves. Lord, remind us this morning, when we look in the mirror, we don't always like what we see. And yet, God, you chose us. You chose us. You chose us in Christ. So, God, because you never gave up, we're not giving up. Today, we decide to follow you. Today, we give you our lives. Today, we give you our hearts, God. Have your way, God. We're not looking back. We're no longer looking back, God. Our eyes are fixated on Jesus. We thank you for it. In Christ's name.